I'm going to ask Comrade Ranjit to address us now on behalf of the party on the topic again of COVID and international events. For a second, because if we think about our comrades who have spoken from their countries and their experience, and as communists, and as and, and I'm speaking on behalf of the communists of Britain, and I think on behalf of the workers of Britain who will stand with us, who do stand with us, and increasingly will come to us, um, to say that the experience of our comrades is precisely that it's the experience of the revolutionary transformation of the oppressive system of capitalism into the true liberation and freedom and equality that we will enjoy and the socialism and the future communist society. Marx is buried, as you know, very near to us. We're speaking from London. Uh, and in Highgate Cemetery, uh, his beautiful gravestone and epitaph takes one of his theses on Furbach and is inscribed on his headstone. And perhaps you will uh, know what it says. Uh, but it says, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. Yes. And so, you know, uh, without getting too much I'm deeply inspired by the individual struggles. I know the history of each of your peoples, the world of your, of your liberating movements, and of the leaders of your liberation struggle. Comrade Kong, when you spoke so movingly about what you're doing now to help the people of the world, I can't help but reflect that I'm reading a book, for example, right now uh, by Agnes Smedley, uh, China's Great Road, which is the story of, uh, forgive my pronunciation, so in the, in the English we used to say Chu Te, now it's Zhu Dei. Chu Te. Chu Te. Thank you so much. So, you know, a, a Chinese peasant coming from a poor background who managed to scrape together enough money from his uh, family to go to school and then university, who ultimately liked physical education and went into the military, became a militarist, but was inspired by Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen, who was a leader of modern China, who saw the backwardness of feudalism, who saw the oppression of colonialism that inflicted 100 years at that time, that became 150 years of colonial humiliation upon the Chinese people. China, which for much of the you know, modern civilized world for the last 13,000 years, has been one of the dominant forces, has been one of the centers of civilization. It had been 20 to 25% of the world economy was forced low under the heel of imperialism. And the peasantry all over China suffered this, you know, two huge mountains of oppression upon their back that led to them living a wretched and miserable existence. And yet, Sun Yat-sen went, he went, perhaps naively, to bankers and leaders of world capitalist powers, thinking that they would help him to found a modern government, a democratic government. He wanted democracy for the people of China. Surely that was the way forward. But he found one after another, they were not interested. They intrigued. They wanted simply to get the maximum surplus profit, the maximum profit from the people of China to, to use the imperial system, to align themselves with the backward fuel system, to loot the people of China. This is what their interest was. Gunblow diplomacy, forcing opium on the people of China, forcing backwardness and benightedness on the people of China, and subjugating and colonialism, dividing China up. It was perhaps the last territory on earth that wasn't fully colonized by imperialism. And ultimately, Sun Yat-sen 
And after him, Mao and the great students who led that national liberation movement, Chu Te, but also, of course, uh, Sun Yat-sen and so many others who were the founding members of that party realized that they couldn't look to Western democracy and Western ideas, that there was a higher form of struggle, that that form of struggle had been shown to them by the October Revolution, by the Communist Revolution in Russia, and they looked, Sun Yat-sen looked, and after him, of course, the Communists looked to Russia. They looked to the experience of the working class revolution that had risen up, that had freed the people of this benighted Tsarist Empire, and had abrogated all of those unequal treaties towards China. And it was the great revolutionary movement of Mao Zedong, inspired by Marx, inspired by the October Revolution, that really led to the freedom of the people of China, to its entry onto the stage as a modern and dignified power that is able now to do so much for the people of the world. We applaud and we salute your spine. didn't look purely inward. It talked about proletarian internationalism. Its ethos was workers of all countries unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. You have a world to win. And that is more relevant than ever today. I, in my youth, um, was a communist. People used to say to me, do you want to go and live in Russia? <laughs> And in my youth and naivety, I didn't have the answers to them. I couldn't tell them, no, this is about the class struggle of working people everywhere against inequality and injustice, against tyranny, against imperialism. This is about us here and now. I would say yes. <laughs> and it affected me very deeply when the Berlin Wall fell, when the Soviet Union fell. And again, at that time, I didn't have the tools to understand it. Our party is amongst the few parties that has the tools to understand it, that realize it wasn't communism that failed, it was the betrayal of communism and the reintroduction of capitalism that failed. And it was particularly urgent a question to reclaim that ground when we look for solutions in the deep crisis that the world is facing today. Because without that clear direction, that understanding that communism, that socialism still represents the bright future of humanity, one would simply fall into the slough of despond, into depression, into irresolution, into nihilism. And in fact, not only would that happen, that is happening to our youth when we look around, and not by accident, because precisely that is the message that is given to our youth. There is no future other than capitalism. It's the least worst system. There's nothing else available. Yes, it has defects, but there's nothing else for you. This is how it is, get used to it. And if then environmental crisis is unavoidable because we don't have the tools to change it, then surely the end is coming. And this is genuinely a philosophy which is kind of understood, espoused, and deeply affects the minds of workers and youth, even in one of the richest countries on earth today. Because if we come back to the pandemic and we talk about it, what does it really show to us? I've been speaking a lot on, uh, on social media, uh, perhaps on Russia Today, uh, on George Galloway's show, his, his murder of all talk shows, which I, which I recommend to you all, about the pandemic, what it's meant and how it's affected us. And really, you know, 
my main contention is that this pandemic, like other crises that are happening in the world, above all things, has held up a mirror in which can be revealed the physiognomy, the beliefs of the ruling caste in our world and in each individual country around the world today, and revealed in imperialism a monster with all its hideous and grotesque features for all to see. But on the other hand, in the socialist countries, in those countries who say, what is the role of our government and our system to serve the people? It has shown what a starkly different world is possible, realizable, and achievable, not in some distant future, but here and now, on Earth, today, and in our country, too. pandemic hid amongst, you know, amongst all other things is the fact that it's not a natural disease, actually, that is the plague of humanity. And by that, I'm not telling you that COVID is not real. It's an economic disease. It's, an, it's a pandemic, above all, of inequality. We live in a world which is so deeply divided, more deeply divided than any other before. You know, when Chancellor Cole stood all those years ago with the fall of the Berlin Wall and held the capital, volume one of capital in one hand and Lenin's imperialism in the other hand, and he threw them away and he said, this is finished. He could not have been more wrong. But that was a... at my heart, but at the heart of workers in his own country and throughout the world. They thought, with the fall of the Soviet Union, that we would be, as humanity locked into their system of capitalist and wage slavery forevermore in perpetuity. How very wrong they were. If we really look at the essence of capitalism, if you want to understand what it is today in this era of pandemic, you don't have to look beyond a few quite startling statistics, things I've said before and I'll no doubt say again until they're no longer facts which dominate the reality of our world. Within the United States, three billionaires have between them more wealth than over half their country's population, the richest country on earth. You know those people. They're Bill Gates. They're Warren Buffett, and they're Jeff Bezos, and then sometimes Elon Musk. <laughs> you know, they're fluctuating wealth of the stock exchange. But three of them, just three of them, have more wealth than half of their country. But in the world, the eight richest billionaires have more wealth than half the planet's population. That's three and a half, 3.75 billion human beings who live on the edge of penury and the edge of starvation. To imagine that it's possible to have stability, to imagine it's possible to have justice, equality, uh, a meritocracy, a democracy, all of these are words, honeyed words of imperialism that are so far divorced from the reality as earth is from heaven. The reality is we live in an incredibly unjust world. And the pandemic, far from changing that, has reinforced it because the pandemic is actually hidden what is the major economic fact, which is a world economic crisis of overproduction, which struck in 2020, which meant the entire Wall Street economy basically collapsed, and Trump had to inject some four trillion US dollars 
into the, that economy to keep it afloat. Just as before him in 2009, Gordon Brown had injected hundreds of 850 billion pounds, and the world injected 4.8 trillion to keep capitalism afloat. What is that if not economic engineering? We're told that socialism is unnatural. It's not a proper state of affairs because it doesn't let the free market reign. There's no such thing as the free market. It hasn't existed for over 100 years. We live under a system of monopoly capitalism. It holds sway over the entire world economy. It has held sway and it continues to hold sway. But even though it's teetering on the brink of collapse, it uses its state power to rob the reverse of Robin Hood, to constantly rob from the poorest in society and give out to the richest. That's what we've seen in this country and throughout the world during the pandemic. That is capitalism. That is why we say it has no future place, no future role if humanity itself is to live and have a future. children are malnourished or live in poverty. That's a startling fact. In terms of the pandemic, in Britain, we've had over 150,000 deaths, perhaps 170,000 deaths. Those are real deaths, and they've hit the poorest uh, and most marginalized communities hardest. They've hit the frontline workers of our health system, a health system which has faced repeated privatization, attacks and privatization precisely because Capitalism in crisis can leave no stern untoned in its search for extracting the maximum of profit in order to keep itself afloat. It is a law of its existence. It cannot help but do so, whether under a Labour or a Conservative administration. Whilst capitalism exists, it cannot help but suck the lifeblood from its own workers and even more the workers of other countries overseas. That's why we're perpetually involved in wars. And yet, imperialism as our comrades have taught us, lifts rocks to drop them on their own feet. Imperialism is failing. We've seen that 20-year occupation of Afghanistan come to a juddering halt, not because of the great economic might of Afghanistan as a nation, but because of the absolute injustice of the cause of US imperialism, of its barbarity in murdering well over 100,000 Afghanis, in pumping three and a half trillion dollars into a 20-year project of occupation and destruction of a country in the Middle East that formerly was a progressive and socialist country, purely to attack socialism and use it as a base for attacking the Soviet Union. And yet, despite the targeting and isolation of the formerly progressive and socialist leadership, despite the fact that the leadership was taken by a religious movement that wouldn't be a natural ally of ours, that wouldn't be the ideology we prescribed for the people of Afghanistan, the main point was they refused. Nothing, in the words of Ho Chi Minh, is more precious than independence yeah. and freedom. kick out US imperialism, then how much more do the imperialists fear 
major countries or major powers guided by a true liberation ideology of Marxism, of course they fear it. Of course they fear it like the plague. Of course they attack it you know, on using every uh, channel of propaganda possible. But we are proud to stand with all of the countries represented here today. Comrade uh, Kong, of course, we stood against the lies told about the Uyghur genocide, the lies told about Hong Kong, the lies told uh, about Xinjiang, the lies told about Taiwan, the lies told about the South China Sea and the right of China to protect its own waters, the lies told about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is finally offering so many countries around the world some other avenue of investment and development than US and British imperialism. And So happy to have you with us. In 1997, I don't know if you were born. <laughs> I was five. <laughs> so when you were five in 1997, and I was uh, just about to go to medical school, and I knew I'd got entry to medical school by then, uh, I was lucky to go to Cuba to the World Festival of Youth and Students, and I still remember. The slogan of that meeting, I, I doubt you all know it, was Por la Paz, la Amistad y la Solidaridad Antiimperialista. Peace, or friendship, and anti imperialist solidarity. And at that time, the Soviet Union had recently fallen, and there were energy problems and crisis in Cuba. Yet the people made a real sacrifice, they actually put up with a blackout. Uh, for a several days a week in order to generate the fuel necessary to generate, you know, to have, to have, to have this huge delegation from across the world come and visit their country, uh, to run the buses, to take us to venues. We were put up in families, I'm still in touch with Nancy Juanita uh, in, in Cuba. Um, and I remember that a child coming to me and, and literally singing across the fence, Delegado, Delegado, because we were, we were delegates at this world conference of of, of uh, youth and students, and they were so happy to break the isolation of the blockade that US sought to strangle since the, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. Two. Two? Yes. 1962. How many years is that? Almost uh, 60 years. 60. 59 years. Yes. US has sought to strangle this tiny island of Cuba. Why did they fear it? For the same reason that they sought to strangle and unfortunately did successfully strangle that again, that tiny island in the Caribbean. Granada. Granada. Do you remember Morris Bishop? Do you remember the New Jewel movement? Do you remember the beautiful words and the things they did to uplift their people? A tiny country as it was. Why was it a threat? In the English-speaking world, 100,000 people only. Yeah. But they're close ties to the US proletariat, the British proletariat, the, the English-speaking proletariat, to give a revolutionary example, how they fear our revolutionary example. You're right. They, they used to chant, forward ever, backward never. never. Absolutely, absolutely. In English, that's what freaked out the Americans. Absolutely, and, and they fear 
fair example, but it's the same reason they apply discrimination towards our party and ideology, but it cannot be kept down. So we, I mean, talking of internationalism, I was inspired by Norman Bethune, who, I won't go into his history, but he was a surgeon from Canada who came and fought and, and served with the, uh, with the Eighth Route Army, with the Chinese Communist Army in China, and died and Mao Zedong wrote a beautiful, it's part of his great book, a beautiful speech on internationalism. Why would a man come from Canada and make a common cause with us? And similarly, one of the greatest figures of the revolution, not the greatest, but one of the greatest figures, Comrade Che Guevara, yes. who came from another country, people don't even realize he's Argentinian, mm -hmm. a medical student like myself. And who of course died today. And whose who's, who's death at the hands of the Bolivians, because having made a revolution, rather than sit pretty in Cuba, not that it was sitting pretty, but struggle in Cuba with a position and power, he so felt the urgent need to spread the revolution to the Latin American masses that he went to Bolivia, unfortunately was caught, and put to death, we know, at the hands of the CIA and the local Comprador regime. So we salute that heroic spirit of internationalism that really says we are all fighting together on the same front line against imperialism. Pleasure to have you with us as always. We have been inspired. Every country that will make this transition to a, to, to a people centered government has its own path. And we have been shown in Venezuela a new path. It's a, not an easy path. It was again surrounded by imperialism. But we were so inspired by uh, Hugo Chavez. We've been so inspired by. The person he said was the right person to lead Venezuela after him, Nicolas Maduro. We continue to be inspired, and absolutely, as Jyoti said, we will pass the resolution. I have no doubt of solidarity with the government of Nicolas Maduro and the ongoing struggle of the people of uh, Venezuela. They fear our revolutionary ideology in action. They fear us putting the working people in power. They fear the agency of the masses. Nicolas Maduro took the time out amidst all of the struggles he's facing, amidst the sanctions, amidst the illegal seizing of 1.1 billion of gold bullion, the wealth of the people of Venezuela held in a British bank, that our government, you'll never guess who, our Jeremy Hunt, the very same person who's been attacking the NHS, attacking the junior doctors, was the very person who went to the United States and made a cozy deal to deprive the Venezuelans of their gold, their wealth, the people of their wealth, trying to starve them into submission, to stop their revolution in this practice, has the arrogance to appoint a president. They talk of democracy. My father often used to tell this fable of the emperor who loved the dragon. Many of you will know it. Emperor loved the dragon. He had the dragon painted everywhere on his palace. The dragon looked at the emperor and thought, this, 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 this uh, emperor loves me so much, I must go and pay him a visit. Dragon turned up in front of the emperor to greet him. The emperor was frightened to death and had his guards kill him. <laughs> and this explains the relationship between imperialism and democracy. 
they talk about democracy. Everywhere they say they want to introduce democracy. When they finally see democracy, when for once as the exception rather than the rule, the very bourgeois democratic process of, of democracy, of elections, which is meant to cement and guarantee the right and power and privilege of the comprador elite and the US. Who, let's not forget in the Monroe Doctrine, ascribe to themselves the right to the whole of Latin America as their Lebensraum as their back door, as their backyard, whatever you want, as their sphere of influence, as their territory, their colony. Spain, get out. We fought the Spanish-American War. It's ours now. No. They ascribe themselves the right to appoint you a new president. When they see democracy, they are scared to death of it, and they want to destroy it. And this is succinctly describes their relationship and their foreign policy towards your country, which is not, you know, truly dictated by their desire to protect human rights. It's directed by their desire to steal your wealth. You say that you are having difficulty feeding people. By rights, you're one of the richest nations on earth. We know that Venezuela, the Orinoco oil fields, sits upon more oil than any other country on earth. It's that desire to get their hands on that oil that motivates their aggressive policy to Venezuela, just as surely as it motivated their policy towards Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and so many other countries. We are not fools. that it was Comrade Nicolas Maduro who took time out on the 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto <laughs> to make a televised broadcast to the world and explain to people in struggle the importance not only of their practical struggle but combining it with this revolutionary theory which could actually help to guide them in their practical struggle, stay steadfast and win victory after victory. We salute him, we salute you, and we'd like you to take our personal greeting back to your government and back to your country. And Comrade Jose Morales, your beautiful speech was a tour de force. It's very hard to speak when you said so much and exposed the character of imperialism. It was Mao again who said, women hold up half the sky. If we are unable to mobilize working class women, we are unable to mobilize our people for an effective and lasting revolutionary struggle. Period. This is the lesson of every successful revolutionary struggle, starting with October and not ending, but continued in all of your struggles in all of your countries, and we salute you for this too. struggle against a false consciousness, false struggles for freedom, uh, against the idea that uh, men are women and women are men. <laughs> the leader of our Labour Party, Keir Starmer, is very explicit that he thinks that men can have a cervix, and this is a struggle that must be fought urgently to protect the rights of the masses of the world. How far divorced is this from the fact that in our world today, one billion people are essentially starving. A billion people lack access to clean drinking water. 
every year, 30 million children die from malnutrition and related diseases. Probably 40 million human beings die every year, essentially from poverty. But this is not important. We must fight for the right of men to declare that they have a cervix. What kind of leadership do we face? One that's so divorced from the real struggles of the people of Earth and the people of our countries, this that we're fighting against. We remember your struggle. I grew up at a time when Nicaragua fought its first successful revolution when it was under attack by imperialism. I remember Colonel Oliver North, who is known for the Iran, selling weapons to Iran, which was officially the enemy. But what wasn't clearly understood by everyone was that there was, the US was so involved in an operation to prop up the contra guerrilla fight, the massacre and the butchery and the bloodshed of your country to stop the people's right to have freedom, that it was financing that dirty, bloody, illegal war against your people with drug money. It was one of its first narco war, and that drug money was also linked to Colonel Oliver North, who was simultaneously selling weapons for the profit uh, of his own imperialist government to a government which was the official enemy of his country. He was brought down for that, not for, and, and simultaneously, where did that drug money come from? <laughs> they flooded their own country, the United States, with drugs. It's still awash with heroin and cocaine, with wasted lives. They actually used that to put down the revolutionary movement of their own people in the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, what happened to the Black Panther Party? Where did the Crips and the Bloods come from for people who are interested in this inner city history of the United States? It came from the activity of the American government and the American deep state, who in drowning the democratic revolutionary governments of Latin America in blood, flooded their own people with drugs and drowned them in blood also. There's a reason that the United States is such a bloody and disjointed, disgraceful society. Uh, richest country on earth it may be, most unequal country on earth it certainly is, blueprint for humanity's future. We say never, never will that be the future of our country as long as there's a So I'm going to wind up and, and, and finish. I hope, and perhaps I haven't touched enough on the corona pandemic. But really, the corona pandemic is real. Natural disasters are real. You know, in Ethiopia, uh, when we were, grew up and there, were, there was a famine in Ethiopia, there was nothing natural about that. There was nothing natural about that. It was a consequence of property relations. Ethiopia was exporting flowers. Ethiopia was exporting food at the time. They had a mass starvation of their marginalized people. It's, when we ask, is there democracy, we must ask, is there democracy for which class? Yeah. In the countries represented here, the working people are in command. As a result of the working people being in command of their actual economy, they responded to the pandemic by looking after their people, putting the people first, and they had historically low death rates from the pandemic. In China, 7,000 people have died of 1.4 billion. It's less than 0.05% of 1% of the population. I mean, that deserves around... Their country's population is similar to ours, yet we have over 200,000. America and India are the highest uh, mortality countries. 
These are the countries of unbridled capitalism. America at the highest stage. India still has two-thirds of the world's poorest population. COVID has spread like wildfire. It's caused untold death and misery. You've witnessed the scenes of people dying of oxygen starvation in India, of hospitals being overwhelmed. This is what capitalism offers the world. The, the picture is stark. Either place yourself at the mercy of capital, eke out a wretched existence as of old, and sink lower and lower, or adopt a new weapon. This is the alternative imperialism puts before the vast masses of the proletariat. Imperialism brings the working class to revolution, and our comrades here from the countries that have lived and are fighting the revolution show us not only that a revolution is possible, but what a revolution is good for. So join us. peasants and he invited those from the foreign armies, from the not foreign armies, from the white armies, from the armies of the reactionaries of, Chut, uh, of Chiang Kai-shek to join them. And he said, we have nothing to offer you but to taste with us the bitterness of struggle. The bitterness of struggle is long. It is not going to be over in a day, but there is no other future. We invite everyone to join with us. It's a hard road. It's a true road. It's a road which will lead to liberation and salvation for us, for our planet, for the environment, for our youth, for our children, for all nations, all classes, and both sexes. So join with us. Make common cause a better world is possible. Common.